Hi, I'm James. And I'm Drew. And welcome to Graphic Support Group, a mindful podcast for the design industry and the self, where empathy and the creative cloud meet. Join us as we delve into the mind and soul of graphic design, from PSDs to PTSD. This is Graphic Support Group. Hi everyone, we're back for another really exciting episode of Graphic Support Group. Um, it's James. I'm Drew. And we're here today with Eric Hugh, uh, <clears throat> who we've wanted to have on the podcast for some time and luckily got an email. Um, <laughs> he needs very little introduction, but we have wanted him to come on and share his unique experiences. Uh, Eric has had a prolific career both as an independent designer as well as holding the reins in high-profile corporate positions. Uh, we're going to dive into his journey and what keeps him going these days. So welcome, welcome, Eric. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much. We've uh, we've kind of thrown you around as a, one of our dream guests. So this yeah. is very exciting for both of us. Oh, dream about that. that that's that's y'all are too crazy yeah I don't, I don't know about dream but i you know if the baseline is that if i don't turn this into a nightmare guess like I'll yeah. i mean nightmares yeah. are good too nightmares there's are good no, as well. no such thing yeah. as a bad episode that's true yeah. i i have the bore i have the most boring dreams actually um, oh really like a recurring dream is me trying on headphones at the apple store and that's that's it <laughs> and then my nightmares are are really boring too. Like, um, like I woke up screaming the other, like the other month ago and my partner Millie was like, what's wrong? And I was like sweating and stuff. And what happened was in my nightmare. Um, so like my friend Roy, we are all at the airport and he was like, can you wash my suitcase? Um, I'm going (laughs) to go use the restroom. All right. All right. I'm just watching a suitcase. And some lady grabs his suitcase by accident and I'm just, like, yo, lady, like, that's my friend's suitcase. And she didn't hear me. And I'm like walking after her. And the dream ends with me like I'm I'm wake up screaming, stop, because I'm yelling at her to stop <laughs> um, to give me back my friend's suitcase. But it's that's just wild. like it's just like too close to kind of real life, which yeah, is yeah. Yeah, for better yeah. or worse. I I similarly have boring dreams, but like well, first of all, I was gonna ask if how the Apple store headphones thing is not a nightmare. considered a a dream (laughs) and then the other yeah well you can answer that but uh which category do you really think it's in yeah i'm Um, I'm... it's pretty pleasant emotions i'm just like (laughs) debating like oh like this one has like better spatial audio (laughs) (laughs) but this this makes my ears hot and then this other one is pretty free but the quality is not as good yeah it's 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 honestly really boring i it's not a dream or a nightmare really um cool so we'll jump right into our return recurring question with uh what experience from your career has had a lasting emotional or psychological effect on you it's an interesting question because like i feel like it's almost a bit too tempting to try to go for like the super traumatic experiences sometimes but Mm -hmm. i think in reality I feel at least for myself, um, 
a lot of the experiences that stay with me um, psychologically or emotionally for a long time are just like the most random tiny occurrences that I don't really anticipate would have, you know, make me like change me in any fundamental way. Right. And it's not until years later when I look back and it's like, oh, that's how that happened that I really realize it. Hmm. Um, I don't want to act like I'm exceptional or anything, but I do want to give two experiences because I feel like I kind of want to balance out like a good one and a bad one. Um, okay. Yeah. But so the good one and the, and the, again, these are like kind of like the tiny ones, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. but I was just starting off in school um, I, and this is art school and I, w- I was a little bit nervous, but um, I think my, my dad was telling me like, you know, worst comes to worst, like you could just be there to network and you could meet really amazing people and you could really learn from them and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so I was like pretty excited on like my first day of school. And then um, I was just like making small conversations with the person next to me. And I was like, yeah, I don't know what to expect, but, you know, I'm I'm also, you know, pretty open to new experiences and I'd love to network and just meet people and meet other designers. And uh, the TA in the class kind of overheard me and he blurted out like, um, people only want to network with you if you have something to offer. And I was like, okay, that's fair. And then I didn't really take it like too much to heart it, it, it was just like yeah you know that makes a lot of sense but then i, I think i kind of realized like like that's kind of a big reason i don't really put myself out there necessarily or seek out help or like introduce myself to people or um you know do things for for better or worse it's like i think for a long time in my career i was just like I have to work up to some imaginary point where I have something to offer where people would want to approach me rather than me approaching them. And I think in some ways it's helped me and made me really beneficial. Like it's made me kind of resilient and kind of relying on myself. Like I do like people I've been told, like I, I do a lot of different things and I don't really think it's out of interest. It's really just like pathologically, I'm just really scared to ask for help. So I end Mm -hmm. up just kind of doing a lot of things. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, I think it's kind of maybe like held me back a little bit. I think when I when I think back, I, I think it's something that I still kind of deal with today. Right. Um, I think another one that's like maybe really a good experience was um, also in school when I was about to graduate. Um, there was kind of this like old kind of curmudgeon kind of he used to be the department chair, but he ended up being like Mr. Grumpy old professor. Right. Um, and his name was like Paul Hoggy and he basically looks at your portfolio kind of one-on-one before you graduate. And he gives you like, (laughs) like the, yeah, you're good. Or yeah, you're not good kind of talk. And it's like, I don't know if it's like still a tradition. Um, Well, it's not because unfortunately he, you know, I think he's, he's really of old age now and I don't think he's teaching anymore, but yeah, he, uh, I never had a class with him because I was kind of too scared to take him because everybody's told me like, he's just really kind of intimidating and whatnot. And so, you know, after just kind of four years in school, I, I was I don't really think I was like really confident at that point. And I was like mm-hmm. kind of really scared. So I'm showing him my work and I'm like kind of shaking and I'm like stuttering and everything and just really thinking about, you know, I'm about to graduate. What do I do next? Like I applied to grad school, but I wasn't sure if I was going to get in. And if I didn't get in, I didn't really have a plan B. And um, I think he kind of just sensed um, how nervous I was. And he didn't really say anything when I was showing him my work. 
but he kind of just put his hand on my shoulder and was just like, I need you to do me a favor. And I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> like I thought it was like some crazy punchline that was going to like a super dunk. I was, I thought I was going to get ended right there. You know, like yeah, yeah. don't do, don't do, don't be a designer or whatnot. But he was like, I want you to go home. Um, I want you to close the door and I want you to go in front of a mirror, turn the lights off if you have to. And just stare in the mirror and just say, my name's Eric and I'm a good designer. And he was like, don't leave until you believe in it. Wow. And it's, it's kind of like the plot of severance actually, um, that new hmm. show, but yeah, this was, this was, a, you know, more than a decade before that. But I think for somebody like me, it was the kindest thing anybody ever did for me in yeah. my career as a designer. I think what was really interesting was like, you know, I, I, I think with the confidence thing, I think some of it's cultural, some of it's kind of learned yeah. um, based on like my lived experience and whatnot. But I think it was one thing when I heard other people say like, hey, Eric, you're, you're pretty good at this. Um, I think it was easy for me to dismiss um, right, or it's right. like, oh, that's their opinion. And it would flatter me. But I think it was very different for me to say, like, hey, I'm good at what I'm doing. Right, and right. I don't think that was something I. I really believed. Um, and it's something that I don't always believe too, either way too. And so, but I, for some reason, I think he just saw that little kind of broken boy beneath like mm -hmm. the, that kind of shell. And, um, yeah, I, I think that night I, it took, it took a few hours, but when I finally believed it, I kind of walked out that door, like just like a really different person. Yeah. Um, and I, and I kind of walked and talked differently really after that too. So I would say, you know, those, those things kind of came kind of early. Um, yeah. you know, I've, I've been through a lot of stuff, traumatic stuff, you know, yeah. clients, non-clients. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a funny thing with being a designer, right? It's like, it's not always the clients that drive you kind of nuts. It's sometimes it's fucking Twitter. Sometimes it's like, <laughs> you know, New York city. Sometimes it's my own kind of demons that, that kind of get, that kind of spill into, I think that professional kind of setting and that kind of work process. But For sure. I would say like, you know, career wise, you know, it's those those two kind of events are, are both kind of boring, but they're almost like polar opposites of each other. It was yeah. like, you know, I think we talk about trauma a lot, but then I don't know if there's like a word for it. I don't want to call it anti-trauma, but then there's definitely been moments where somebody, a stranger kind of came in or something happened to me that helped like me heal and like kind of mm -hmm. undo a lot of that kind of trauma too. And I've I'm been just really grateful for that. And that's something yeah. I... I try to remember because like, I think like if a hundred people say something nice to me and one person doesn't, I, I think about that one person that doesn't like, that's just who yeah. I am as a person. And yeah. so mm -hmm. I think I, I, when I do try to look back and think about these moments, I realize that I did actually have a lot of subconscious help along the way by, mm -hmm. by friends, family, strangers, um, et cetera. Yeah. yeah I yeah. love both of those experiences because they're kind of like, like the the networking having something to offer is sort of like how you're projecting out out towards someone and then the confidence in yourself is how you're projecting into yourself so they're both like matters of perception but um you know, dramatically different ends of the spectrum i think mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah 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 I think that confidence both. thing also bleeds into oh sorry i didn't mean to interrupt oh no 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 go go ahead well, I, I guess, you know, the confidence thing is is kind of something that kind of creeps into everything else. You know, it's sure. like 
I think sometimes when you're when I'm not feeling confident, I realize that's also when I'm like the biggest hater um, on the things around me or the things that I didn't do. I yeah. think when I'm most at peace with myself, I'm in the best position to be happy for other people or not feel competitive or not feel mm-hmm. like I have to compare or measure up to people. And it, and it's right. really that it just feels like this kind of compass, you know, that sometimes it swings north and sometimes it swings south. So it's like a right. messed up kind of compass. But yeah, I think like really like I don't want to say self-love, self-acceptance. I, I don't really know about those kind of terms, but I think just feeling kind of centered in who you are. Yeah. Um, and then having that kind of self-awareness has, it, it, it leads to a lot of other kind of dominoes falling. For sure. Yeah. I mean, what do you, what would you say you do when you find even now yourself kind of doubting yourself or losing some of that confidence? Like you've gone through so many different, and we'll talk more about this later, but like so many different types of careers, like in your career already, I think like different yeah. types of positions that like make you feel a certain way about yourself and like put you on a different plane for yourself, et cetera. And I'm wondering for me personally, like when I do those kind of shifts that are not even comparable to yours, like, you know, going from like a small studio to like a big branding agency or something like that like it kind of fucks with my head and i feel like whiplash from like the shit the switch and being around people that are different and kind of learning how the how people do things in different contexts and like how i can fit in like what do you do and what have you done in the past to sort of like get yourself out of those like bitter hate fueled moments that you were describing maybe or moments where you're not necessarily feeling like centered in yourself and yeah because like it's hard to find that again like once you hit something like that you know yeah and sometimes you know sometimes it takes a long time to get out of that kind of season um you know i think the last time i i felt really in a hole it it lasted years you know It, it lasted years where i just it was very hard for me to see kind of the positives in myself and in my kind of environment around me. And, um, you know, it's, it's when my tweets are the funniest coincidentally, but it's, in, I <laughs> yeah. think it's like, I think for me, a lot of it is there was this, there was this anime that I watched with my little brother when, when we were both like, I think in high school, it was called Gurren Logan. And there was a, there's a main character in there and he's just like this wimpy little boy. Um, like just kind of just kind of mopey and didn't think he could um, do very well. And then the side character is just like, hey, like, don't believe in yourself. Believe in me for believing in you. And uh, that was kind of an interesting trick. Um, I think especially culturally, too, when it's like, I think I think there's there's a lack of moderation, um, maybe like broad, like broadly speaking, like I think on my cultural identity or maybe my familiar identity where you either hate yourself or you're like in love with yourself. And it's very hard to kind of find that kind of center. But what's helped me in the past is just realizing like how many people are just like rooting for me, honestly. Like I remember there's been a few times where I'm just like on my way to an interview or applying to something and I'm just really scared. And at that point it's like, I've done all the work I can and it's really in somebody else's hands and somebody else's decision is going to affect my life, whether it's like a job application and stuff. Um, and all those times where I've just been really nervous about bombing, I just kind of think really deeply about like, man, I got a lot of friends who, 
who think I'm I'm up for this, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And in a weird way, it's like I trust their judgment more than my own. I think mm-hmm. in general, I think I trust the judge. I th- I take, you know, I, there's friends where whose opinion I hold in like really high regard. Um, and sometimes that's kind of created, I think, issues for me where it's like I trust other people over myself. But yeah. I think this is one way for me where it's like, you know, for me to become that like super confident, super like um, self-loving um, kind of, I don't want to say like kind of white boy energy, but like to me, for me to get to that kind of point, it's going to yeah. take a lot of work. So yeah. I'd rather kind of just use what I have where, you know, like I think being deferential to other people and holding them in high regard might be a negative in this situation, but this is where I'm going to try to make it a positive. And I just try to cope yeah. like that. Like, you know, it's like, I just try to work with what I have. And I think that's trying to, that's just, I think self-compassion for mm-hmm, myself mm-hmm. in a bit of level where it's like, you know, for now, like there's definitely people whose opinion I trust more than me. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm just going to trust them when they tell me um, the things that I really needed to hear to keep moving forward. And I just right. kind of yeah. don't question myself after that. So it's like a, a bit of a misdirection. But I think in terms of like other kind of ways to that's not centered for myself, I really hate it. It's like, you know, like I hate that this is the answer a lot of times. But honestly, it's like asking myself if I slept well, if I drank enough water, all that. Like, I, I hate that that's the answer because it's like the most boring answer. Right. But yeah. really, I think the older I get, the more true it is where it's like a lot of times when my basic needs aren't met, that's ten, ten, you know, when these things kind yeah. of go out of whack where it's like, right. like sometimes I don't know if like if I'm really spiraling, the world is crashing or maybe it's because I pulled an all nighter. And like, of course, I'm feeling like, this, oh, yeah. Right? Totally. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of times where afterwards I'm like, oh, man, I was just tripping like right. that, was, that was like I, that, I, I was wilding like that, that, like that was not the situation. And yeah. But I think, you know, there's not really like Game Shark to life when, it, you know, that, that that's like that's the cheat code right there. Like that's that's, you know, that's the formula for a lot of cases. But I think, you know, there's there's cases where it's in between. And, um, you know, it's it's one thing at a time. Like, I think it's also OK if you don't completely love yourself at, at a moment or love what you're doing, too. I think that journey of self-compassion is also just acknowledging like you don't have to be you know, tip top, because there's some people are just like, I got to be confident all the time. I got to do this all the time. I got to be assertive. And I had a phase where I, I really did that. Right. And I don't think it actually led me to be happier, actually, um, because, again, like I have problem with moderation. So it's either like I don't speak up for myself or I'm like an asshole about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, it's hard for me to find that middle ground. And so there were years where for a lot of reasons, I was like, I got to be outspoken. I got to you know, say what's on my mind. It was like, I had just moved to New York. So I left like that kind of West coast kind of passive aggressive culture that I was used <laughs> to. And I was like away from like, just all the trappings back home. And, you know, it was like, it was something interesting too, where I noticed like the Asians in the East coast were a lot more kind of assertive and talkative than I think the Asians where I grew up were. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a mostly Chinese community too. So I think it was like my first summer in New York where I just kind of took that in and I, and I realized like, you know, kind of New York kind of brings that out of you a little bit where you do have to kind of speak up for yourself and advocate for yourself. So I took it upon myself to really do that. Right. And, and what resulted was like, you know, a few years where I think it, I got to meet a lot of people through that, through, you know, just like kind of playing up that part of my personality. I got to Mm -hmm. have a lot of opportunities, but 
it also just wasn't me completely out all times. And it also like, I, you know, in that process, looking back, it's like, I was really cruel or not compassionate or just straight up mean to a lot of people at the same time too. And, you know, people that definitely didn't deserve it in the past. And so it's just something for me where I kind of have to just like reckon with and kind of find that middle ground. Um, And I don't really have the answer for that yet either. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a process. And I, I'm like interested to talk more about the cultural aspect because I can relate in terms of like, you know, like as a Korean American, sometimes it's not looked upon as, you know, lightly or, or, or nicely. Like when you're when like self-confidence or like self-assurance sometimes is seen as like boasting or even yeah. being too concerned about the self. Um, so it's interesting that you bring up the anime example because it's sort of like, group mentality it's like we as a community can support each other um that's super fascinating Welcome. Thank you for being here. I'd like you to take a moment to appreciate yourself and to reflect on how you've chosen to spend your day. Take note of the fact that you've set aside this valuable time to learn more about your industry and be open to its infinite possibilities. You are here. It is now. You are surrounded by like-minded thinkers, colleagues, friends, acquaintances, role models, and perhaps even some adversaries. You may be feeling overwhelmed, envious, inspired, hopeful, hopeless, anxious, eager, tired, burnt out, or energized. Wherever you are, take a breath in and try to instead simply see the bounty of goodness here today. The community of thoughtful designers from all around the world who have chosen to spend their day together in positive discourse about the work they do and their love for it. You are a valuable member of this community. You are part of something bigger than yourself. You see value in this larger scheme and seek knowledge by immersing yourself in its richness. If your eyes are open, you will see everything. The outcome rests mostly in how you decide to look. This will guide you on your journey and help you appreciate the goodness around you today. It's interesting when you describe that like kind of self-loathing and or self-doubt but then you remind yourself that you have all these people rooting for you because 
at a point in time, there probably was a long time, I'm guessing, where you didn't, you couldn't find those people necessarily, or maybe it's not the case. But like, you know, for me, I think when I was like bitter and sort of like self-doubting and and feeling like I had to rely only on myself and couldn't rely on other people, not only did I not know, not only was I bitter and like kind of acting in a way that people didn't enjoy being around. <laughs> so it's not like people wanted to root for me, you know what I mean? Yeah, Cause yeah. I was just like kind of cold and maybe a little dry and sarcastic and like, just wanted to like do better than what I was doing, but I didn't want to like ask anybody for help or, right. but right. once yeah. you find, once I found like one person who understood what I was trying to do and understood that I wasn't an asshole, like, then I could use that. Yeah, but I was just, I just wondered, like, was there a period before when you were like, why? I don't know if this ever happened to you, but if you were like kind of trying to find those, those like positive voices or like positive uh, people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think for me, I just got really lucky. Um, you know, I, my four best friends from undergrad, like, I talk to every day still. Um, nice. And we're like super close knit. And, it's funny. It's like, I think people who maybe see me online or who don't really know kind of who I am, like as a person, they, they might assume who are like kind of my close knit friends. And it's really has not, it's like, it's really none of the people that they really think. Um, and I, so I've just been very lucky and I've, I've kind of really cherished that. Um, but I think, yeah, there, there was like a while where I was just straight up just wild. And like, I was, I was just kind of running my mouth. And mm-hmm. I think even for a lot of my closest friends who, were so happy for me seeing where I've been. They, it was also hard for them to stomach sometimes. It was, yeah. you know, like, I think I definitely had a few kind of difficult conversations with some friends over the years, like when I was going through it, where like a lot of friends were just like, Hey, I'm worried about you. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to say I don't like the person you become, but like I, as somebody that knows like the gentle um, kind of softer side of you, like I'm pretty heartbroken that you feel the need to like, stomp that person out you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yeah it, i think i think in those cases too where it's just like i was also just really lucky that i had friends that it felt comfortable enough to say those things to me yeah too. that's and valuable. like yeah you know even at the time i don't think i was ready to kind of hear that but i think looking back it was just like i think the thing with friends and, and people you really care about and like you know wanting what's the best for them is that it's never just one conversation mm-hmm. it's a bunch of small conversations over time and you know, so I think that's definitely I know that like not everybody has that um, mm-hmm. and everything, too. But there's definitely a time period where like I think if I it, it definitely felt like like if I slipped, like a lot of people would have been like definitely not sad about it or not sympathetic, you know. And, yeah. and I think yeah. that was like uh, that was something that I kind of brought upon myself in a lot of ways, too. But yeah. You know, I, I I still don't think it's 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 completely gone too. Like I, I definitely think there's people who rightfully and are and aren't rightfully is like skeptical of I think my intentions and my work and my practice, but you know, it's like I try not to let it keep me up too much at night. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean I was just gonna add that like I know that when you kind of create that like urgency in yourself and that sort of like defensive way of operating in terms of like work and professional like whether it's school work or professional work like you create this sort of like you create high expectations for yourself that you can't 
necessarily meet and then also like you create this like false sense that like you could slip and like like fall yeah and, like you know It'll all come spiral out of control immediately yeah. like if you make one mistake where it's like that pressure i think is like part of what's fueling like that kind of like negativity and like yeah bitterness it, where it's like well like it's not like that really you know it yeah it's not really like that i mean i think there's a certain like i think i think a good critique is like that does come from like this kind of main character syndrome as a lot of people call it, where you think of your life as like a narrative with a plot and a climax and an arc and other people are side characters. So I think there's a little bit of self centeredness to think that like people are really out there kind of watching you at the same time. Like we live like in the most hyper visible surveillance platform, capitalism kind of apparatus, like in human history where it is actually really possible to keep tabs on a bunch of people. And so yeah, it, yeah. it's really weird where it's like someone's like, most people aren't thinking about you. Um, it's like people don't have to be think, thinking about you, but their timeline algorithm could be like, yo, you're thinking about this person right now. And I'm going to make you think <laughs> about it, right? And it's like, right. and that kind of changes the game. And But, you know, I think with that in mind, it's something that I try to keep in mind. I, I think, James, you mentioned like you were interested in like that kind of cultural aspect. I mean, yeah. I think... I think growing up Asian American is like growing up with a, like a grip of contradictions in a lot mm-hmm. of ways where, um, you, it's like, you really oscillate between like very two extremes where, um, you know, there's a big concept about losing face, like maintaining your reputation, oh, yeah, totally, yeah. but then at the same time, you're told to not play up your reputation. And I don't think mm-hmm. this is essential or exclusive to being East Asian. I think this is a lot of cultures have that. I think even just like, even amongst like, you know, white people, like there's even subs, like there's even like subcategories of whiteness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I relate to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, you know, there's, there's definitely kind of overlaps in, in like in, you know, the Ashkenazi kind of Jewish kind of thing. And then like the Catholic thing. And then I think the Asian thing where it's like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta be loud, but you can't be too loud. Um, and you know, it, I think for me though, it was more, I think it was more kind of just like my, my dad, to be honest, like he was just, my dad was like not stereotypically Asian and he was very outspoken. Um, and he was very opinionated, but it was only about his opinion. Um, and so he was kind of like the, the, the son and everything else around him in the family unit, even like the grandparents extended family kind of orbited around that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he, like everybody kind of had to manage his emotions and his kind of feelings of self-doubt. Right. Right. And I think like, there's also just like, there's also just like really, again, this like what I, what I think like some people are really good at doing, for example, like what I think like British people are really good at doing, I think culturally is like they could, they're really good at saying what's on their mind, but like making the other person smile while they're yeah. doing it. It's like, yeah. it's, it's just an art form to just be able to speak your mind and, and just be like, um, so charming about it. Cause I, I mm-hmm. think like, it's not just the, like the speaking your mind thing that happens. Like, I think in Asian culture, you speak your mind so many times. Like, yeah. like if I'm shopping in a Chinese grocery store, I'm much more likely to tell somebody like, yo, this thing's too expensive than like, you know, like a non-Asian kind of store. <laughs> right, um, right. I think there's like certain kind of cultural context where you do actually speak your mind. The only problem is that 
I think a lot of times like the speaking your mind is like coupled with confrontation right. and, you know, there's no kind of really in between. And I think I'm just, I was kind of raised on the idea that when I'm speaking my mind, I'm directly challenging and confronting somebody. Yeah. And in other cultures, you know, that's just not really the case where, you know, like, um, like, I mean, it's funny, I keep harking back on the Jewish thing, but there's like, I think this ling linguists call it something like positive overlapping or, or uh, affirmative overlapping where, um, especially like Jewish Americans, like, like they'll interrupt each other and they'll like speak louder over somebody, but that's because they agree with them and they want to just like, mm. it's like <laughs> almost like being a cheerleader. Whereas like, I think other people might interpret that as like, you're interrupting me and you're directly challenging me. And I, right. and I think that's actually, that's actually kind of American culture too. I think America in general also has this weird thing where it's like, if you're disagreeing with somebody, um, it's always a confrontation. I think right. that's just like a, that's definitely an American thing too. So <clears throat> When I say culturally, like I, I really honestly mean like Asian plus American and not just Asian, right. because like, mm -hmm. you know, when you go to Asia, like the dynamics are actually there's a lot, there's big differences in that kind of dynamics. Like, I think yeah, when you totally. go to Asia, people speak their mind all the time, but yeah. because they're not a because it's you know, you're not afraid of confrontation. Like you could you could like get in a shouting match with somebody and then be their friend in two minutes, I think, yeah. in Asia, where mm -hmm. I think in America, it's like there's the confrontation aspect and it has to do with like, it crosses into like loyalty or friendship or like, mm -hmm. you know, it crosses into like a personal territory where it's like, I'm going against you as a person. And then yeah, I think I, that's kind of just been interesting yeah. to try to navigate. Yeah. yeah. I think in America, a lot of those emotions and responses are taking a face value. Whereas like yeah. being in Asia right now, like a lot of it is like, the moment and then looking at the context of the relationship past the moment. So I think that's, you know, that's something I like, like my dad always kind of like stressed into me is just like looking at the relationship in context and, and getting past the moment. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm I, not to interrupt you again, yeah, go but ahead. like, yeah. I think what's, I mean, just to add to that, like, I think what's interesting, I think like Korean versus like Chinese, for example, is like mm -hmm. how big like Confucianism is in in each kind of this culture so yeah i think a little bit of context like um you know in korean and japanese culture there's a there's there's definitely like a strict kind of hierarchy and for sure for and, sure. and like in the family unit or just in people in just age and you almost mm -hmm. have to address people older than you by a different thing like you don't call someone oh, yeah. by their first name yeah. if they're older yeah. than you you know um you know there's opa nuna hyung um yeah. in, in korean china used to have that um and it used to have a bunch of those sim similar kind of rules until 1911 when they overthrew the emperor and installed mm -hmm. a republic. And a big thing they did was like, you know, Confucianism is in the past. Um, and we're trying to build like a free, open, democratic society. Um, well, I mean, obviously that didn't work out, but that's what they were trying to do at the time. And, <laughs> right. and the thing they were doing is like, we're not going to do with Confucianism anymore. And so there, there's this thing where it's like, it's almost kind of even more heightened in Korean and Japanese culture, like the East Asian cultures that kind of kept that Confucian yeah, based system. Sure. And in China, there's a little bit kind of more wiggle room, like, yeah. but it's almost like kind of worse in some ways because like, it's sort of like when a company gives you unlimited vacation days versus like two weeks vacation. <laughs> it's like kind of, it's that kind of weird conundrum where it's like when a company gives you unlimited vacation days, by the way, it's like, don't believe it. It's like what they basically turned is like, something that you had the right to, which was like 14 days off or like seven days off. Mm 
and turned it into something where it's like a privilege where it's like, hey, check check with your manager to see when's a good time to take time off. And like people right. get kind of more weird about it. So people actually take less time off in those unlimited vacation day policy companies. I think it's mm. a similar thing in this Chinese system where it's like, you know, the one thing about having these really kind of strict hierarchies in Korean and Japanese culture and like addressing people by names and even speaking formally is that these are kind of guardrails where it's like, as long as you play within that ball field, you could kind of say some wild shit. Like there's yeah, like, yeah. like you could, you could basically, it's like, as long as these boxes are checked, like that's all that matters. But in a way where the Chinese thing, it's like, we kind of did away with Confucianism, but you're kind of a dick if you don't follow it. And that's where it really kind of creates all these kind of confusing kind of moments where it's just yeah. actually kind of safer to just be extra deferential or, or not say anything um, mm. or like not try to rock that boat. Because like, yeah. it's like, you know, like it's it's that thing. It's like, why do why are Formula One drivers able to drive fast? It's not because of their engine. It's because of their brakes. It's because right. they know they could brake hard. And so that gives them that kind of permission to go wild. And it's right. like, Socially, I don't really know. I don't have a set of breaks in the same way that a lot of people I know do. Hmm, and so for that, it's like I tend to err on the safe side where it's like I tend to drive slow. But there's people that, you know, they have their own set of social breaks in how they navigate a situation, whether it's like a client or personal, where they know they could kind of drive fast because they could depend on a good set of breaks to like really step and like really go close to that kind of edge. Right. And that's just something I've been kind of envious of people, you know. Right. That's interesting. I never yeah, really thought about Chinese culture that way yeah I was um, also interested not to like I'm sure there's more to talk about but when the way you were describing your dad it reminded me a lot of how I would describe my mom and I think yeah it can have a lot of different effects on somebody to like have to manage somebody else's emotions and insecurities at such a young age also and like yeah not know like like take it on on your on yourself like take yeah. somebody's I, like i feel like 90 percent of my neuroses really kind of comes down to that like i think my dad was very opinionated he's very outspoken but he also kind of had an extreme kind of temper and so mm -hmm. i think growing up i just had to be really good about reading the room and like mm -hmm. anticipating his mood and in a way that kind of helped me become i don't want to say street smart but it, it, it equipped me to kind of just vibe like vibe things out and really suss things out and like really right. pay attention to con like subtext and like, you know, like meaning that's unspoken. And I think that ended up actually really helping me as a graphic designer, like just thinking that there's like kind of layers of meanings right, just because right. I had a really annoying family unit to kind of deal with. And I was like, I felt like I was like a Navy SEALs of like <laughs> listening to people say what they don't mean and like mm -hmm. hoping you understand where they're coming from. But, yeah. and it's funny, it's like, the better I got at like placing boundaries and stuff, it's like, I feel like the cornier or like the less self-aware I've gotten in some ways too, where it's right. like that kind of fear-based kind of like, okay, yeah. like, it, like temperature check that I was constantly doing just kind of, you know, dissolved a little bit. I think another thing too, is that like, um, you know, my dad, somebody that's also had a chip on his shoulder, like where I think he took a very unconventional route in his life. Like, um, you know, there was a lot of like kind of money trauma and like finance trauma, like growing up where it was like very rocky and it had to do with like, I think my dad just trying to find his own way where he didn't want like an office job. Um, right. and he really wanted to be like, kind of like that hustler. Um, I think he really got soaked into that American dream kind of thing. And that, that meant everything between like 
a successful business and a stable kind of income for the family and like pyramid schemes and like nothing for the family. And like, I've kind of experienced him go like through kind of all different things. I think one thing that's kind of weird is that like, I think I just got permanently like self-help book poisoned in my head where Mm -hmm. like my dad was, it was the only thing he would read and he would listen to the audio books before there were audio books. Like he, um, like he would like record himself, like reading the passages out loud and just like loop it and play it, you know, like, like it was like the hottest album in the car and he would like, (laughs) he would get me to kind of recite things. So it's like Tony Robbins, Napoleon Hill, seven high habits of highly effective people, all that kind of stuff. Rich dad, poor dad. Like he was just like, yo, I'm going to, he was like, kind of really just like, like, like had the blinders on. And what's kind of weird is that like, I just, I think it's the reason why I'm able to like sum things up in like slogans or like I'm able Hmm. to, I think, explain things to people or it's almost the reason why it's like, I felt like I was a pretty decent at teaching or like where I like, you know, like. I've gotten the comments sometimes where it's like I, I give off this like motivational speaker energy and it really is embarrassing because I don't want to do that. And like and like when I look back at it, I think a lot of that stuff was really predatory on my dad, to be honest. Like it was like really trying to sell him on dreams that were just like not realistic or, you know, feeding into certain delusions. Right. But it's just like kind of that was just the way and how I was taught to digest the world around me. It's like in like small kind of bite-sized chunks. And I think in a way that really informs my design practice um, for better or worse, like both positives and and negatives about that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious because you've talked about your dad uh, before, especially with the help self-help books, but this is kind of like a weird connection that we're trying to make here. But we also noticed like you're really into like productivity apps and like kind of having a regimen. Yeah. And we're just curious, like, yeah, yeah. do you think there's a, rela- a relationship there? Like kind of growing up? Oh with man, a hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think, know. yeah, I think some of it is like, I think I'm interested in coding and I've always been interested in coding. And I started off as like in web design before I, you know, branched out into other forms of graphic design. So I think when you like do when when you like become like a programmer or you like learn about engineering, I think it sort of lends into like thinking about things that optimize for efficiency or just like mm-hmm. not you know, there's a slogan dry like don't repeat yourself and it's basically mm-hmm. like create systems where you don't have to do the same repetitive tasks over and over. So I think there's definitely an interest from that, but it's also, yeah, like absolutely that came from my dad. He always was trying to scheme about like what was a better way to do something that Mm. other people were too stupid to not think about. Like he was just like he had like all the kind of weird kind of like tricks up his sleeves Mm -hmm. in, in random things. And I but I think for me, too. It's also just a consequence like of just like really bad ADHD. You know, I, mm-hmm. I struggle. I'm, I'm on medication. I struggle a lot with ADHD. I think, again, for me, I just have to have rigid kind of systems because mm-hmm. I do have a problem with moderation where like now I'm, I'm vegan and I'm sober. And mm-hmm. like the only reason I, I am that is that like I, I don't know how to control myself. Right. I have like a very addictive kind of personality where I can't just have one drink. You know, I've, yeah. I've had years where. I had like tons of drinks a night. Let's just say that. And like, I don't know how, like what I can have, like a little bit of something. And so, um, you know, when it comes to like eating healthy and stuff, it's like the best ideal thing is, is that you have a little bit of everything. Right. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how to do that. Like my mind doesn't work like that. So I just have to like 
rule and cancel some things out. And, and I have to do that to keep the guardrails on me. Otherwise I just kind of slip like even just like kind of like a regimen, like the moment I bring my laptop into the bedroom, I know the next month is fucked. Like, yeah, the moment I bring my laptop into the bedroom, like I'm not sleeping at the right time because I'm like 4am. I'm like, sideways like laying down sideways on my bed my laptop's also sideways the bright screen kind of glowing and then i wake up like at 3 p.m because i like slept really late and then i'm mad at myself and then i'm in a bad mood the rest of the day and i'm behind on work and then i and because i wasted a whole day i want to stay up late like it just kind of that i i like i'm i know myself enough to know how the dominoes fall right and so you know if you give me an inch of like pleasure i'm gonna take that whole fucking mile right and so even like when people talk about things like the Pomodoro app, like, yeah. oh, you work for 25 minutes and you take a five minute break. It's never a five minute break, man. The moment I go on break, like that's it. Like it's a wrap. And so <laughs> I like I've taken screenshots of like a Pomodoro timer where it's like telling me like, hey, you're supposed to end your break six hours ago. And I'm just like, <laughs> you know, doing something else like, oh, damn, yeah. like that's yeah. wild. And so it's really just it's really just really for me. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's this kind of weird kind of compulsion. I, I've had to get a check like with therapy because I think also, you know, it, it comes to a point where it's not healthy because it, I know for me, it stems from this like desire to be in control, right? right. The desire to really kind of compete. And, you know, I realize like sometimes the stricter the regimen, the less compassion I have for myself yeah. where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of that about productivity and stuff is like not healthy because it's about being like, I want to be productive today. Whereas like the bigger question is just like, what do I feel right now? Like, right. how am I doing? Yeah. Like, how am I, you know? And I think the productivity thing, it's kind of dangerous. On one hand, it's the only way for me to kind of keep myself in check and to live the life that I want to live. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, like, yeah, it's just like, I do need to be better when I'm just like, you know what? Like, I, I, I'm tired. I can't work anymore today. And just really respecting my body and listening yeah. to myself. You know, it's like because every time I don't I don't decide to rest like my body ends up deciding for me and it's just Mm -hmm. not at a time that I wish or it's convenient. It's like I'll just be like running on fumes and I suddenly like like there's times like and this is why I have to do freelance, really, because like I can't do that nine to five thing, to be honest, where like it's very hard for me because there's just going to be some times where I just don't like I can't do it. Like I don't have it in me because. I, it's so much work for me to just get to that baseline level of getting enough, the same amount of work done that other people get um, because of the responsibilities and expectations placed on me. And then it's like, that just kind of burns me out. And being freelance, it lets me kind of do this thing where people call it like working like a work, like a lion. And there I go again with that self-help kind of poison. But (laughs) the thing about like a lion is that like, it rests for a long time. A lion will rest for a long time and then it'll sprint to like go on a hunt and then it rests for a long time. And that's really just how I kind of work where, um, the best compassion I have for myself is just knowing that like, yo, I need to take long breaks. Like sometimes I'm, there might be days where I just need, need to not do something because, um, my natural rhythm is that like, I'll have like, you know, concentrated weeks of movement and then like just really kind of rest. Um, and it's just the balance I have to try to create the work I create where it's like really kind of, um, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's like, I, it's like, there's this expectation to be both prolific and challenging yourself that yeah. I feel like you kind of, you kind of have to bake in rest and reflection, um, yeah. into that if you want to make that kind of work. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it was in- it's interesting because I was reading this thing about how like trends in fashion specifically coming out of like TikTok and like Instagram trends. It's like everything has to be labeled as soon as possible. Yeah. So that yeah. So that people can actually use those labels to sell things. Um, and I think yeah. that's actually started happening with ident- identity politics, like, you know, in the last 10 years, of course, where it's like, if we can label it, then we can create commerce around it easier. Yeah, I think it's, it's a it's a big kind of web to like, kind of like tech industry kind of mistake, right? Like, I think we sometimes underestimate um, people's ability to see things outside of their own experiences, but we also overestimate um, the need to like give people really easy to digest things. I think people are able to take in complexity more than we give them credit for. And so a, a word I use a lot to describe it is like, um, you know, the word cloud, like when you're talking about technology, right? Um, the cloud is just kind of a word that's kind of patronizing, I think, in a lot of ways. It's like um, our typical person is too little brained or like tiny brained or smooth brained to understand what a content delivery network or, or, or service as similar means. So we're going to call this the cloud because it's easier. But then when you say the word cloud, you actually understand what's going on under the hood a lot less than the word content delivery network, for example, like it's a complex term, but at least it's giving me some kind of clue content delivery network, like of the functionality of something. Right. And so when we call it a cloud, we you reduce it from like a thing that people made into something that's witchcraft or something that can't be changed. And so with all this kind of cloud based computing, when we talk about the tech industry, for example, and all our complaints about it, we talk about it as if these are these unchangeable kind of immovable kind of things. Right. And it's I think a lot of it's like the terminology we use. I think the same way, too, is like when we talk about mental health, you know, this over focus, like None of us having a psych degree, but talking like psychiatrists, you know, it's like, I don't think that can be like really helpful or good. Right. And so, you know, it's like, I think like just the terms like grooming, love bombing, like, um, you know, even like emotional labor, for example, has been like kind of misuse, like emotional labor came from this like very specific instance, for example. And it's about capitalism that if you work in the service industry, um, you often have to fake or like downplay some of your emotions to keep your job, right? And so what it means is like, if you're a waitress and somebody tells you a joke that you're serving, that's like a really stupid joke, you have to pretend to laugh because Mm. that's your tips depend on it. Or it's like, if you're having a bad day, you can't project that onto your customer that you're serving. Um, And so it is strictly in that kind of service worker capitalist sense. But then somehow we ended up with the idea that emotional labor just means like being a friend that listens to you. And like we somehow in order in the, on this quest to try to understand people and have compassion, we've actually made people more transactional and less compassionate, you know. And so I think I think about labels a lot, but like labels are labels are just so kind of helpful and not helpful at the same time. And labels often just really betray their intentions in a lot of ways, too. I kind of want to address your sort of rise to success and then your subsequent turn to freelance and stuff, but I kind of want to take a two pronged approach. Um, The first approach, I kind of want to talk about it like more in terms of like, instead of what, what led you to the decision to leave Nike and um, take focus on your body and your health and, and go vegan and go sober. 
I'm I'm more curious about like the decision and how you've been maintaining that afterwards. Um, yeah. It sounds like you've also like done a lot of reflection in terms of understanding how you work, so you fit your lifestyle to 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 accommodate that. Um, and then the second prong approach, will I'll kind of remind us is like. I'm really curious what your experience has been having achieved that much success as a young person and like what our industry obsession with like celebrating youth in this kind of like vicious way um, has done both to you personally, but also like maybe there's some things we can kind of watch out for and, and look out for as industry. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's, it's, it's a lot of things, right? Like I think when I found myself, um, I think for a lot of my young adult life, um, I didn't really have time to really process um, the survival tactics I used to get out of like really bad, often violent, often really toxic kind of situations I grew up in in my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think going to art school in a lot of ways was a huge blessing. Um, and it was almost like my ticket out of my kind of environment. Like, I don't want to say like I grew up in a like, like a poor neighborhood or whatnot. I, I grew up, um, you know, I went to public school in LA and I think economically it's, you know, it's, it's a very kind of baseline middle of America. Um, you know, often like even upper middle class in some cases, but yeah. I think it was like, I was in a school system with just like mostly Chinese immigrant kids. Um, I think so it was really interesting where it's like all of us were kind of just dealing with a lot of immigrant trauma at a large kind of scale. Yeah. And so, you know, I think when I was younger and like having less mentorship and stuff, like I, I, I got in trouble a lot. Like I, I wanted it to get involved in gangs and I got in a lot of um, situations that I should have gotten. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I try to do good. I, you know, I try to um, stay safe and I don't think I ever had it in me to, to like really hurt people. So I'm thankful that I just, that's not who I was as a person and I never went that far, but you know, a year before I got into to art center, um, for, for undergrad, you know, I, I'd, I'd been arrested, uh, for doing graffiti on, on mother's day. And mm-hmm. I think it was just kind of this weird situation where I think my parents had placed a lot of kind of their immigrant induced kind of hope in me as, as somebody that could overcome, you know, the things they couldn't overcome. And this is kind of this moment where it, like, I, I kind of lived a double life. Like my, I think my parents thought I was like I wasn't the troublemaker and everything was good. And then I think once you get arrested, it's like kind of out in the open. Right. And right. so it, it, sh- it kind of showed them that it's like, Hey, I don't really want to live the life I'm being prescribed right now. And um, I want to do art, but I'm not allowed to pursue art like professionally. So I'm kind of lashing out. And, right. and it was, it was months and months of a difficult conversation. And, and through that, it was just like, um, you know, I'm going to like, uh, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go to art school. I'm going to apply to art school. I know it's expensive. I, I'm going to be on all loans, um, yeah. but I want to do it. But it put a lot of pressure on me because, um, you know, I, I chose to go to a really kind of boot campy kind of school mm-hmm. and also art center at the time, like most, the average age of incoming freshmen was 27. Um, right. It's a lot closer to 18 now, but so I was amongst an older group of people. And what I felt like was like, I had just got access into the, like, I just got access into this party and I need to behave myself. And so, you know, I spent like just all through school and even through grad school, kind of just 
you know, trying to check all the boxes and, and work really hard because I, I was like, if I, if I have to get, if I drop out or if I, if I'm not cut out for this, like all that kind of like struggle that I had to kind of get myself in this situation, would it be a waste? And I don't really have any other, I don't have plan B. Right. Um, you know, it's, and so I kind of just like school was kind of just a blur and it, mm-hmm. it, it really wasn't until after school where I had just time to just really think and digest about myself. And I think like, you know, when you have, when you're really stuck on a goal, even how vague it is, sometimes it, it takes your, it distracts you from like addressing things that you really need to address. And right. so I think I was very fortunate and blessed to get success at an early age, but I think then it just kind of, it stopped me from growing um, up as fast as I needed to. And then when mm-hmm. I finally achieved that success and there wasn't as much for me to keep climbing, like that whole other side of myself that I've been neglecting, like really came forward. Right. And I don't want to say that, like, you know, it, it was kind of crazy because like before I took a job at Essence at Nike, like I was freelancing too, but I was, I was struggling, you know, I was, I, my work was getting recognized. I was very visible online, but I was struggling to pay rent. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, the internet with the internet, you're really good at flipping your L's into W's. Like I was like, yeah, I'm shutting down um, this design studio I started and I'm going to be design director at Essence. The truth was, is like I was three months behind on rent. Like I took mm-hmm. the job because I, I really needed the job. And um, and so what, what's, what I'm thankful for my time at Essence at Nike was that having that kind of stability kind of gave me some time to really catch up on the things I've neglected about myself. Right, and I think, right. you know being at Nike, it's like, it's interesting where it's just like, I was like, I was like the fat kid at like a fashion company. Then I was like the fat kid at a sporting goods company. Right. Right. And it was like, you know, like two institutions that are not the most friendly to people of like my, myself. And it was just like, um, you know, it, it's like weight was something that I struggled with. I think other people made me feel kind of ashamed about it aesthetically, but you know, it, it wasn't enough for me to like really, uh, again, like, change myself. I didn't really want to change it because it's just like, I think by then I had known that like, that's other people's problem. It's not really my own. It's like right, right. society is like very fat phobic and I don't have to be fat phobic to myself, right. but I did have kind of health complications from just like my diet and also just like all the drinking and, and drugs yeah. that I did. And so, yeah. um, you know, I, it like, I think a year into my, into my time at Nike, I ended up going to the hospital, um, just cause my blood pressure was just like, really high and I was like really scared. And so it, in my head, I realized like I had been kind of building up, I've been more of a hypochondriac in the most recent years, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and I realized it was like, as I was like in the ER and stuff, and I was like, this is either the first of many kind of experiences or this could be the last one. And it's kind of up to Mm -hmm. me. Um, And so I think if it weren't for Nike and that kind of stable income and that like, you know, nine to five system, I don't think I would have been able to do that. I think also Portland being like insufferably, insufferably hipster <laughs> as hell, like made it being vegan, like kind of easy and being sober. Right. Um, and so it was like, it was that kind of system made it okay for me to explore these things. If I was freelancing, I don't think I would have, I think I would have made up too many reasons for me not to be healthy. Yeah, it's like, yeah. you know what? I need to meet clients for a drink. It's like, you know what? I need a cigarette. Like I've had a long day. You know what? I need right. this. And because I didn't have these things that I would normally point to as like reasons for self-medicating, it, it became kind of a lot easier. But, and then honestly, it wasn't like I left Nike to work on myself. It was like, I work on myself and now I feel 
safe to go back to New York. It was really yeah, just like yeah, I wanted yeah. to be back in New York, but I was so scared. Like, mm-hmm. like when I was at when I first started at Nike and I or and even when I was at Essence, like when I would come back to New York City to meet with friends on work trips, I would just go like out of control in those days, you know, and then. Yeah. And so I was like really scared of moving back, even though it's the only place where I really felt like home. But it wasn't mm-hmm. until I was like, OK, I I think I know how to deal with um, excess and moderation in a better, healthier way that I could go back to, um, you know, where I want to be in that right, case. Right. And so but the problem with the word maintaining is that like it's not like this like fairy tale where it's like, you know, like I I think the thing about what people don't realize, I think about weight and stuff is that like. You know, once you gain it, it's very difficult to lose it. I think like mm-hmm. biologically, like you're like it feels like you're starving yourself, you know, and it's like your body yeah. wants to return to that baseline. So my weight fluctuates. And and I think the thing I want to make sure about is that it's perfectly OK. Yeah, it's perfectly OK. You know, and there's nothing wrong with like kind of size. I think for me yeah. personally was that my size was because of a lifestyle and it wasn't mm-hmm. like a size. It was like a, it was a side effect of a lifestyle that I didn't have. So now it's like I, I, you know, I'm I got tiny and then I got really tiny to the point where people got kind of worried about me and then I got bigger again. Um, but this bigger again is OK because it's like my lifestyle is a lot healthier than I was previously. You know, right. it's like the calories are from, you know, pinto beans and not like vodka, you know. Right. And so it's it, it's kind of like it kind of hits different a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I also sure. forgot what the second prong of your question was. So no, I, I know I'm kind of I, rambling, but no, that's perfect. Um, thanks for sharing. The yeah. second prong was just like just youth, our, our, our industry being so attuned and like kind of like focused on celebrating youth. Like, I think it's good that we recognize uh, young designers and support them. But there's like this mythology, I think, that like creativity ends after a certain point in your in your lifespan. And we've kind of like commoditized that in a way. Absolutely. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like as a, you know, someone who's been recognized when they're younger, like as an ADC young gun and, you know, got corporate attention for your creativity when you're young. Like what was the pressure like? Like, you know, like just something simple as like turning 30 or yeah. um you know, like making a lifestyle decision, like getting married or something like being an end to some kind of creative fountain that we have. Um, just like, yeah, yeah trapping yeah. the whole youth kind of focused energy. I mean, I think what we were saying earlier, I think the focus on youth was a necessary overcorrection. Whereas like mm-hmm. before, I think we maybe placed too much emphasis on seniority. Oh, um, interesting. You know, yeah. I think like when we were in school, like, when I first was starting in school, like who are the people that they were t- hyping up? Like the Milton Glazers of the world, like the Polishers, like, right. you know, these people that rightfully deserve their fame, but it was like all people who, you know, were also good, you know, because they, not, not because of the fact that they did, but also that they've just had decades and decades of work. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of just reverence for the past. Um, and so, you know, I think that was kind of like, again, that overcorrection of like design in the nineties where yeah. it's like, it's just seasons where like there's going to be 10 years where we just straight up love older people. And then 10 years where we straight up love younger people. Right. Okay. Um, you know, it's like, it's like that kind of weird vibe kind of shift that people keep talking about, but <laughs> it's, it's to me, it was like a necessary overcorrection because I think we lionize like, um, older people too much. And we like disregarded that, 
the, the truth is, is that culture is changing at such a rapid rate that if you are not young, the chances of you being able to understand, you know, label and then prescribe like solutions to to culture, which is really what's necessary as gra- in the graphic design profession, like it's really hampered if you are old because like generation gaps are, are widening in, in so many different ways. But I think the problem now is that like with the youth thing, it's like, you know, we're glorifying something that by definition doesn't last forever. Right. And doesn't, right. and has a finite kind of thing. And the ageism thing kind of sucks. I, I think the young success I had was definitely more of a curse than, um, because like when people describe me as like this young designer, it made me scared for the day people would stop using the word young. Right. You know, and right. it made me feel like, okay, this is going to be the end of my career. And, and there's even times where I still think uh, I look at my work from 2015 to 2016, where I'm like, hey, this was co- this kind of work I did a few years ago was copied a lot more than the work I do now. Um, mm-hmm. And I so there's times where I feel like maybe less sharp or less kind of manic um, or my work has a different kind of energy. Yeah. But I think, you know, turning 30 is what honestly helped that. Like turning 30 was such a beautiful experience for me. Um, yeah. And th- when I talk to a lot of people, it, it's a beautiful experience for them, too where I felt like 27, 28, I got really afraid. And then 29 going into 30 was just somehow like the biggest clarity that I I really needed um, for myself. And I realized like there's life that kind of goes on. I think the problem now is that like, you know, again, like we overcorrected and I feel like I kind of played a part in it where I think early on when I was, you know, getting a lot of the recognition I had at a young age, I was also like on Twitter being like, straight up like fuck the older the older generation like they don't know what they're doing yeah and i think for me that was like me kind of lashing out because i went through a kind of like six years of like really strict schooling and like yeah you know like i had it like you know i went through that whole thesis process in grad school and i had a thesis advisor that you know i felt like just didn't really understand me and wasn't really helpful and just you know was more combative because Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I just didn't do things that the way they did. So mm-hmm. I think, again, I was really overcorrecting for that, but I think now we kind of have the opposite problem where it's like, you know, the millennial Gen Z kind of collectively where we're almost distrustful of things that have been around, yeah. but you know, that's just as much of a fallacy because like, you know, I think the three of us have been around long enough in design where it's like, we're seeing cycles repeat, you know, oh, yeah, and we're totally. seeing new things, pa- like old things packaged as new. And I think having that perspective kind of helps because it it stops you from catastrophizing the bad things and it stops you from glorifying the good things and just for seeing them in a lot more kind of objective way. Right. And I think like, you know, I think the good thing about age is that like you get more kind of, there's more room for kind of clarity. And I think the good thing about um, maybe not so much as before, but it wasn't as contingent on like, tools specifically as like being a software engineer is for example right where, right right you know like you could have people that are graphic designers but they strictly still use like paper and pencil i think maybe that's not as much as before um for a lot of reasons but there was a time where it's like it wasn't dependent on like age specific things as much you know and right, right, right and so like it's really weird when people ask me like what's what are my biggest influences and especially they're at my house and i show them my library like my biggest influences, the thing that I look at most, like, like, let's say typography, for example, it's like books from the 1600s to the 1800s. Like I, like I, I'm like very weird about that. Like I don't really like looking at like contemporary stuff. Um, 
in the same way. I kind of do it just to like, I mostly look at contemporary stuff when I'm like afraid, like, right. like, am I out of touch? And then I look at, you know, I look at stuff on, you know, on Pinterest and I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm fine. And then like, <laughs> like, and then I go back to, I go back to my old, like, like Flemish printing books, you know, yeah. of like. support now we love hearing from the design community call us at 202-507-9158 please share your story with us after the tone we'll do our best to respond on our podcast please leave a name or alias design role and location thank you for your call One thing, what's actually cool about this conversation, Eric, was that um, you remembered my old blog, Graphic Hug, and yeah, uh, yeah. I was really surprised and honored that you remembered that we posted you. Um, but that kind of got us thinking about your social media presence and so just like anything from how you used to run your Tumblr as like an advice column to, you know, the jokes that you make on Twitter and just like. I think Drew kind of has a, a, a better yeah, perspective on this. Yeah, I was just this, thinking but, about, you know, um, we talked about youth and talked about, like, this sort of career that you've had and, like, the many different sort of roles you've taken, but you've spent, like, that whole period of time very online, I would say. I, I think almost the whole yeah, time has yeah. been, like, <laughs> probably if you were to, like, docu- go back, it's, like, well-documented. And I'm wondering how that has affected... Yeah. How, how that experience, like looking back, what, what you think about it and what keeps you kind of like plugged in in that way. And and uh, yeah, any other thoughts you have yeah. about like the social media aspect of your career? Yeah, I definitely like I definitely try to wean myself off of it over the years. It's like I think you're right. It's like. I think when I, I finally shut down my Tumblr, because I think all in all, like no matter how positive or negative the experience was, it's just kind of weird growing up so publicly. Um, and like, I, I really was like growing up like in front of an audience, I feel like, um, and I'm talking about myself, (laughs) like I'm some like big YouTuber, but it's like, I'm not, (laughs) but I I think like, I think the New York kind of design scene is really good at shrinking things and making things feel like, you know, it's, it's a lot more higher stakes or, or visible than, than maybe you actually are. But yeah. I think for me, like, just again, like I had come from like, I think 22 years of living um, like deferential to authority figures and, and really kind of just sheepish and kind of meek. And I wasn't somebody that really stood up for myself. And and like, you know, I, I did it kind of on accident. Like I 
like I actually made the decision to be online. Like it was a conscious decision. It wasn't something like I fell into. Um, and it was like, I, after like my first year of grad school, it was like, you know, I had a, I had a really bad review because I, I wanted to, I wanted to study under these like Dutch professors. And I was like really in love with Dutch graphic design at the time. Mm-hmm. And I really tried really hard to try to make work that was about that. And my first year at Yale, like I, I didn't really do so hot and I had a really bad um, like year end review. And I w- also had just gotten out of this like long distance relationship. So I had expected to just kind of go back to California for the summer to try to make up for things with, you know, who I was dating at the time. But I suddenly was like, like, okay, I'm, I have nowhere to go. I'm in New York um, for the summer, but it was too late to apply for any internships. Mm-hmm. And it was honestly like since the age of five, I've been going to like, like I didn't have a summer break since I was five years old. Like summer was always like, like my parents always like sent me to like, like tutoring and, and stuff. It was like a lot of catch up. So it was like, it felt like the first summer, it was the first summer break I've ever had since I was like a little kid. And at first it was kind of maddening. Right. But, um, you know, I caught up with an old friend from undergrad and I became his roommate and I just kind of just spent days kind of just walking around. And, um, you know, there was this restaurateur at the time, uh, Eddie Wong, and he's just like this really kind of obnoxious, kind of loud spoken kind of Asian guy. And it's very cringy to be like, Oh, this is the guy that taught me to be myself. But it was sort of like, I, I, you know, I thought he was like kind of unpalpable. Like it was hard for me to stomach some of the stuff he was doing. And he was like, yeah, this kind of like loud mouth person that was taking shots at people. And mm-hmm. the thing was, is like, I went to his restaurant um, and the food was okay. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't blow my mind, but yeah. I realized, I think in a weird way, like he kind of really told his story. Like he told his story about who he was, his upbringing, his identity, what it meant to be Taiwanese American. And I'm, I'm Taiwanese myself. Mm-hmm. And I think he just kind of used food as this kind of entryway. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way it was like, oh, I, I don't want to say I was inspired. It was actually kind of darker than that. It was more just kind of like, I had grown very aware of the fact that like social media was playing a much bigger role in our lives. And I was somebody that didn't really speak up for myself and, and really didn't kind of advocate for myself. And I felt like, oh, if I wanted to be a designer in New York, I needed to do this to kind of survive. Um, so there was kind of that, like, where it's like, okay, I need to make, like, let people know I exist, but that wasn't enough to take me kind of over the edge into like shit posting territory. It was really just like seeing Eddie just kind of be unapologetically himself. And I think for me, it was just like, you know, what's like, what's stopping me from doing this? Because I think there are people that actually appreciate him just kind of telling that story and, and him kind of doing that as like an Asian person kind of, kind of gave me kind of permission. And so I was just like, I just need to practice this. Like, cause I felt like I spent a year trying to suck up to these Dutch professors. They didn't like who they didn't like the work I did anyway. So I realized I was like, I kind of put all my eggs to try to suck up and try to fit into the system that doesn't want me in it anyways. Yeah. But who am I at the core of it? And I think I realized through that summer, I think just by meeting people and them just having curiosity about where I'm from, I was like, I'm this kid from this, you know, from, I'm this kid from LA. Like I got into graphic design through graffiti. I got into, you know, like I'm this kid from the suburbs. Like 
I thought about just like my upbringing and everything. Um, and I was like, yeah, you know, like there's only, there's not that many people that do graphic design who have my kind of identity. And mm-hmm. I think I just kind of spent the time just like, I'm going to make the work I really kind of wanted to make. And so the work I became really known for was like that second year starting at grad school where I was doing a lot more kind of this expressive kind of typography or like crazy kind of image making. I was like really bringing that kind of graffiti kind of energy and that upbringing, that California kind of like sense of composition with like the technical stuff I picked up in undergrad. Um, And I was just kind of like, it was just a big kind of middle finger to like, like to, to grad school mean like, fuck you guys. Like I'm, you know what? You guys don't like the work I'm doing. I don't like the work I'm doing either. I'm just going to try to make work. And then at the same time, I was like, I'm going to try to be more online. And mm-hmm. what I didn't expect was, you know, how it kind of ended up being kind of an audience later on. Mm-hmm. But again, I think for me, it was like, I use that word overcorrection again. It's like, I felt like I had to go to the opposite extreme to try to get me to a middle ground now where it's like, I feel free to kind of speak my mind and, and able to do that. But it's like, I had to almost be an asshole. I had right. to learn how to be an asshole to learn how to be like an average person in a way right. or to, to have just kind of a baseline. Yeah. Um, I think what kind of maybe stomped that out a little bit was like Nike and in essence, like I think those corporate worlds is like very clearly like that attitude just didn't wasn't productive in that kind right. of environment. Right? right. And like being online and stuff, it just it created a lot of animosity and like tension for me. And that was like really unnecessary. Right. And you know, so in some ways, like I think after I went through that corporate machine and I got spat out at the other end, I'm I'm kind of almost back at square one in some ways where I think now when I work with clients and stuff, it's like I'm like when a client doesn't like something, I'm like, yeah, let's change it. Um, but and then like later on, I'm just like kind of like, hey, I'm not really happy with the end result. But I realized like I didn't really kind of push back in the way that I used to. And a part of what was created that body of work back in the day was that I kind of pushed back on my clients a lot. But at the same time, I don't really want to go back to it because there's a lot of stuff that was just like kind of unspoken where like I've made a client cry before and that wasn't, that wasn't great. And it's like no graphic design is worth that, you know? And it's like, you know, I, and I think even when I was like, you know, put in positions where I had to lead teams and lead designers, you know, it's like, I think about all the work that people in agencies do, like all the hours they stay up late and all the stuff they push them to. And it's like, I'm comfortable pushing myself, but I'm not comfortable forcing that upon somebody else. And I think that's what made me kind of just really want to take a step back. And so I think with social media, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really this double-edged sword, right? It's just like, it's so hyper visible. It's like surveillance. It's like, everybody's like kind of looking at, what other people are doing. And so mm-hmm. I also just don't like the fact that, yeah, like Instagram is starting to dictate taste and Instagram is starting to dictate like other kind of behavior. So um, it's very hard to also leave Instagram because people kind of talk it up as something that you need to have as a designer. Like everybody says, like, I don't look at websites anymore. I look at Instagram. I'm like, that's right. fucking sad. Like, right. you don't want to look at a website anymore. Like websites are fucking fun. Like, I don't yeah. want to look at a little tiny square, but that's kind of what the cards were dealt with. Right. Right. So for me last year, I was just like, I'm going to automate my Instagram. So I (laughs) queued up, I queued up a year's worth of posts. Um, and then I just set it to post once a week. Like I just found like a bunch of old work over the years and I just stopped checking Instagram. And 
I don't think a lot of people realize that it was like, it took an afternoon to just write up all the captions and stuff. But mm-hmm. like, I'm very bad at get, like a lot of people communicate through Instagram now through DMS. I'm very bad at getting back to people because honestly, um, according to like my screen time, I spend like 30 minutes a week on Instagram total. So mm. about maybe That's like less good. than 10 minutes. Yeah. Less than 10 minutes a day. Yeah. Um, whereas before I, I logged hours a week, you know, and I just realized it just wasn't like, it was kind of just messing with my brain. Like Instagram is what made me like envious of other people, compare myself to other people. It's what made design feel again. It's like, some designers are really well suited for that where design is more like an athletic sport. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think as somebody that actually thrives better in these longer points of reflection that had felt like he was forced to do this, turn this into an athletic sport, like, like trash talk included, like I was just burnt (laughs) out by design as a sport. And I just wanted to go back to like design as like a visual kind of practice. And so I, you know, it's like, I don't update my, my social media that much. I don't really share that much work. Um, but I think it's okay. Like for me, I try to live life like seasons where it's like, I think I just needed like a year away from yeah. social media. Yeah. Um, but now might be the time for me to get back into it. I don't, I don't know if it'll happen immediately, but I think it's okay. I think, I think sometimes like social media also tricks you into binaries. Like, are you going to be freelance? Or are you going to be full time? Like right. it's some kind of side you have to pick. Right? Um, right. You know, my life seasons, like I, those, those years I spent in a full time office job, were really good because I had been freelance and like self-sufficient for too long. But after, mm-hmm. you know, those years of working on projects that millions of people see in these big moving parts and these big teams and these like automated processes, I started, you know, and being in that kind of management position, I started missing like just kerning type by myself, you know, and yeah. I, and I, and I went back to being freelance, but I don't try to make this like, this is a declaration of an identity. You know, it's right. like I'm in freelance season, you know, and it's been three years and maybe there's more years for that, but I'm open to like a season changing. Like I might want to do a full-time job again after I do is enough and I, it's okay. And I switch kind of back and forth with it. But I think that's the thing with social media. It's like, it's a lot of people are trying to uninvent the train, you know, the steam yeah. engine where it's like, you can't uninvent the steam engine. You could only now you should worry about making sure the railroads have equity and the railroads are serving people and that you're building like a fair kind of railroad system or the ticketing system, or you're making sure that it's, you know, like accessible to people that it's inclusive, but right. so much effort has been trying to put the genie back in the bottle, which is like, like, you know, like in your dreams. And so for now it's like social media is going to be a big part of our life. Like, but rather than try to like leave it forever, even though I admittedly kind of did that, it's like, what are some things for me to moderate it? So for me, what I did was like with Instagram, it's like I hated how it fucked with my sense of identity and self. Like it, mm-hmm. it's like the personal and the commercial mixed together. So I just like took away all the memes and shit posts and I was like, I'm just going to strictly post my work. And yeah. when I started treating it like a clinical kind of project, um, you know, it gave me a healthier separation to it. It, not everybody liked the idea. Um, you know, I think the one person in particular who I won't name, like kind of just like went back and said, like, that sounds depressing as hell. And I was just like, you know, buddy, like, mm. like not doing this sounds depressing as hell, like yeah. posting for the rest of my life, you know? And, you know, I get a lot of critique of like, like, you know, why are you like engaging in this space? And like, why are you just getting that imaginary, like, digital like money, like when they're talking about like cryptocurrency or the NFT kind of work I do. And I was like, 
you're getting imaginary digital money too. It's just called a like, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't pay for your, it doesn't pay your rent, you know? Right. Um, right. And it, it's like, people are just, I think people are worried about like the financialization of everything. Everything's financialized. You know, it's like, it's like people talk about like, Oh, like, why are you doing this thing? You know, it's like people are getting kind of self-conscious, like, Oh, I don't want to seem like I'm trying to be an influencer and stuff. Um, but you could have a private conversation with two people and be like, oh, I'm really tired. I want to sleep. And then you'll check your Instagram later and there's an ad for sleep medication. Like your yeah. conversations, your private conversations you do not have on the platform are financialized right now. Right, and this right. is kind of the issue we're in, right? And so what I worry about with like TikTok and stuff, it's like um, there was this big kind of study that was published by first by Patreon and then by um, Gumroad. Um, they both came to the same conclusion where um, so one, there's 200 million content like content creators slash like creators all over the world. Like that's a lot of people straight up. That's the size mm-hmm. of a country. Mm-hmm. Um, but most, most more and more people are getting a lot of their income from selling templates, um, offering tips and tutorials mm-hmm. and stuff. And this, beca- this is part of like the performative aspect of social media where it's like the thing we create no longer has value. We're now creating like now your value being a designer on Instagram is like giving tips to people or like right. selling a class or like, you know, it's like you look at type foundries now, like their posts about like, here's how to design like the letter K better. Like that's all, you know, that's all part of it now. And yeah, it's like where, you know, like you're going to be better if you <clears throat> give away like templates or your sound packs or like give tips, you know? And, and this is what to me just does, like, I think no disrespect to people that do that. I think education is really important. But I think my problem is like education for engagement is maybe like a thing that we have to keep tabs on because yeah, you go on TikTok sure. and you look up TikTok graphic design. It's not like, here's this thing I designed. This is good. It used to be like that. But now it's like, here's three yeah. tips in Illustrator. And so, and then from that, it's like, I've seen designers like get TikTok accounts where they're just sharing their work and then suddenly they're sharing tips and they get a lot of followers and then they kind of slowly pivot into like, here's a day in the life of a graphic designer in Brooklyn. And then it's all, it's a, basically a, an ad in the form of a TikTok because it's just a video of them going to a coffee shop, getting their drink, um, doing that. And that stuff is like what makes them stratospheric. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all just advertising and brand partnerships and, right. and giving away your hard earned skills for, for free or selling your skill, like selling your knowledge to other people to recruit right. other graphic designers. If you're talking about a pyramid scheme, I don't know a clear definition of a pyramid scheme. And this <laughs> is kind of, this is kind of the path that we're going on. And so I think for me, this is why I try to, I'm interested in like web three and stuff. It's like web three might not be the answer, but web two, like I'm over it. Like I don't think, yeah. you know, and I think web three has a lot of problems and it's right to critique it and i think it's all well deserved but until somebody comes up with web 4 or another version of a web 3 that doesn't include this like i'm not really interested in engaging with like you know i think the thing people don't realize is like we talk about mental health and design as an industry but our industry is so intertwined with social media and for what like two people can have like a really emotional argument on twitter and both of them could be super <laughs> unhappy and it could ruin their day and all it does is that it increases the stock price of Twitter. That's all you're right, doing. Right. Like, you know, and we're so wrapped up in like, who's a cool designer? Who's not a cool designer? Who's a designer we should make fun of? Who's a designer we should criticize? All of that, we're just making the stock prices of five companies more valuable. 
Right. You know, that's and that's not what I want to reduce my actions into being. And so I think for me, it's like, yeah, it's like I, I don't want to uninvent the train, but like I, I want to think about the railroads and I think about where we're going to. And I want to think what we right. do with these trains. Do you think that you culture know? has kind of died down a bit, though? Because I I feel like nobody really does that anymore and maybe that has something to do with like you're you were one of the bigger people doing it but uh yeah like i mean yeah. even like you know yeah i don't see i mean maybe it's just my algorithm or whatever but like i don't see like these crazy posts from like david rudnick anymore or like i don't see like this type of shit anymore so yeah. i'm wondering if it's just that i'm not looking or if it's kind of yeah. down and that kind of like ego fueled like a tour but i'm also like a personality has kind of disappeared i think yeah i think like but i think so, it's been and, replaced and, sorry to cut you off eric but i think it's yeah. been replaced by a different type of showmanship like i feel like yeah. before it was kind of like this antagonistic like as you were saying like overcorrection. like now it's sort of like this like super positive super celebratory kind of like self-promotion so I yeah. think the energy is still there, but well, it's like, just in a different form. It's still about like, yeah, it's still about this weird kind of like, what are other people doing and how yeah. do I, I mean, the media that, people you know? are always going to be like doing that, but I don't know about yeah. design if it's happening as much. I, 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 yeah. I think, I think media you know, people aren't very congratulatory <laughs> and I think designers have become yeah. more congratulatory. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's just like, yeah, I'm not going to speak on David's behalf. Um, you know, he David's somebody I consider to be a dear friend. And, you know, I think people who have like kept tabs on us over the years, like there were definitely years where we were in opposition to each other or we were like combative to each other also. Um, but I think, you know, personally, we've it's something we both kind of overcome and, and work through. But I think speaking for myself, it's like it's funny. It's like I'm, I'm making this huge rant about social media, but it's like if I if you look at the last 10 years of like design discourse online, like like I'm definitely like I definitely like contributed to a lot of the things I'm critiquing right now. Right. right. And so <laughs> I say this not, you know, I say this as completely as, as a hypocrite, but also just like, hey, I realize this is bad um, and I and I want to sincerely change and I don't want to do this anymore. But I think also like, you know, I think people. Yeah, I think it's just like we're getting to a point where maybe it is kind of contentious. It, it does sometimes still feel like a hot take kind of industrial complex where there's this competition to try to think of like, um, like the most interesting angle on something. And before mm -hmm. it was just really easy to make fun of something mm -hmm. for engagement. Right. And now it's like maybe like kind of murky. And I think people just try to kind of figure things out. I, I hate to describe <laughs> like the motivations of like real human beings, like in such like clinical terms, but I think when you're talking about like a mass kind of thing, you there's there's no choice but to just think of this mm -hmm. like statistically. Mm -hmm. um, but I think like also like I think a lot of us like our peers that maybe were outspoken to it's like the honest truth is is like I think we all kind of worked on ourselves. It's like it's no coincidence like the moment I finally paid for therapy, like like the mean stuff started started going away. Yeah, I think you know David's been on a similar journey where I think the more he started he's spoken to me about this where like the more he started actually celebrating other people um, and recognizing like what's positive about their practices and their actions, like it, it was super yeah. beneficial for him. Um, right. And so I think also it's just simply the fact, like 
I'm not young anymore. You know, it, all that stuff is very cute when you're young. It's like, I was a young <laughs> up and coming guy, but at this right. point, if I'm making fun of something, um, you know, there might be a chance I might be punching down and not, I'm not mm -hmm. even realizing it. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think even when I was shit posting, like I try to keep a very tight kind of moral code where it's like, mm -hmm. I don't hide behind an anonymous account because, you know, like, I just think that's kind of cowardly. Like I, like I'm going to be responsible for the words I say. So right. I would say some wild shit, but it was sort of like, I knew the opportunities that I was closing myself away from. I knew like, um, what I was maybe doing for my reputation, but I'm, I'm doing it because I, I sincerely believe this is something that I mm -hmm. should say. Um, right. Maybe not in the tone that I did, but I should say. And I think number two, it's like I never, I, re I rarely ever talked about somebody's work. Like I never really talked about like if design was kind of, if somebody's work, like I didn't like, or I thought it was lame or something. Like I mm -hmm. very mm -hmm. rarely, I maybe poked fun at a genre of design, but I never ever brought that mm -hmm. up with people. And yeah. so it's just something where it's like, I'm at, I'm at peace with what I did. Like I, I, mm -hmm. I, I said some wild shit, but it's like, I, I, I played by my own set of rules and I, and I stuck to it really closely. I think now mm -hmm. maybe like the rules like kind of went out the door where it's like, I feel like such a, a lame and an old guy saying this, but it's like the new generation of graphic design, like angry boys just feel like incels to me. Like they mm -hmm. just, it's like the lonely guy behind the anonymous account, you mm -hmm. know, like saying the stuff I was saying, but it was like, it was, there's the kind of like a lack of consistency. Like to me at the time, I think we were really trying to fight against like, like the old system where it was like about privilege, about like gatekeeping about these things. But when these things are now being actively addressed, it's like, there's not that necessary to try to bring that kind of same energy. Now it's like, yeah. it's also like, I'm just in a different place where um, it's much more responsible for me to try to be supportive yeah. of people rather than trying to tear people down. You know, it's like, I've been through, like I had my days as a young designer. Those days are kind of over. Um, I like the work that I do now. It's just like, I'm the not being young anymore is a blessing where it's like, I don't have to be cool. I could just mm -hmm. make the work I want to do. Right, Whereas like, right. there was this kind of weird pressure when you're, when I was young to like, oh, I want to make a piece of design, but it can't be boring. It has to challenge what came before. And I hated that. Like, I hated feeling like, oh, I have to challenge something when I'm making something. Like, yeah. why can't I make something to celebrate something? Why am I making something to be, like, mm -hmm. combative? You know, and like, why am I making something as a reaction against what came before? Even if it was against myself, like, the idea that, like, oh, I have to be, it has to be better than what I did before or something. And it's like, what does that even mean? Like, what is right. that? You know, and, and now it bothers me a lot less where it's like, hey, I could just make something that I think is appropriate for this client. Mm -hmm. Hey, I could mm -hmm. just make something that I think is good. It doesn't have to really push it because no matter what, especially with Instagram and TikTok now, there's always a cooler, like more hip designer out there than me. Right. Like I'm I'm definitely like washed up in a lot of ways. And it's being washed up is like one of the best things to happen to me for my mental health, I think, in a lot of ways. And and I think it's the same thing for a lot of people. But, totally. you know, it's like, and, and yeah, I used to be clear, I use the term washed up as like, to, to almost as like a kind of self critique. It's like that ageism thing is just really stupid. Like there's no yeah. such thing as, there's no such thing as washed up. So to be clear, I'm just kind of using it with that kind of mm -hmm. disconnected. Yeah. I think, I think for me, what I've been really grateful for is that like the last few years, I've just really kind of felt less of a need to do that. And I've just made, yeah. like a lot of my new work is, is more quieter or just more kind of simple and it and it just makes me kind of it just makes me kind of more happier too where it's like what i what i did always believe is that like 
sincerity is more important than originality. Sincerity yeah. is more important than technicality. Like as mm-hmm. long as you tell a story that feels like genuine and, and true in a visual mm-hmm. way, like that's going to have much more lasting power to me than something that's trying to be more technical. Um, I Wrapping up, one thing we like to do uh, is come up with a mantra. Um, and I think maybe this conversation, instead of a mantra, it's a, it's a, a keyword and I, that's overcorrection. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't know if you guys have any ideas. I think, I think overcorrection is a good one because I think it's something that we're taught as graphic designers. Like a big totally. thing you're taught in design school is that like, you should always try to design something crazier and then take mm-hmm. steps back if you have to. It's a lot yeah. harder to to try to design something like incrementally and move up to it. So yeah, totally. I think overcorrecting is in the designer's DNA. Like mm-hmm. if you want to make something big, make it bigger because you know it's going to be negotiated downwards, right? Right. Um, <laughs> and so, and that's why I think of that word a lot. Like you, you always like you always try to you know shoot a little bit more because if you ask for exactly what you want, you're going to get less. And right. so I think overcorrection is just the necessary step, but I think it's how long we stay in that overcorrecting phase that right. other things emerge that right. are things that we might not even want, you know, mm-hmm. right. over. Well, I was Do thinking cause any, that, that could anyone? be the title of the episode for sure. And then usually yeah, for sure we have yeah. like the title and then like the mantra, <laughs> but I guess the mantra here is like, Maybe one of them is, I don't know. There's like a no regrets kind of energy, I feel like, where it's like, you know, there's like a lot that's happened and a lot that we've discussed that like is maybe not things you're so happy about looking back or some things that you are happy about looking back, but like you don't really regret doing any of the things. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just part of a process, you know, it's, you know, overcorrecting is the process. Like that's yeah. a lot of what it is. Oh, there it is. Overcorrecting <laughs> is the process. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, cool. Thanks so much, Eric. This has been a really great yeah, conversation. Um, just covering so many bases yeah. and, you know, thanks again for being so candid and um, hopefully this will be a very helpful uh, episode for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah thank you. Um, yeah. I think what you guys are, yeah, I think what you guys are doing is great. You guys caught me right when my ADHD medication wore off. So I'm like, <laughs> kind of, I sound, I probably sound a little bit insane. Oh, uh, no, this, no, but, no. Totally. But, you know, it, it worked out. <laughs>